calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to this episode of our Take 15 series about the evolution of performance measurement. I'm Mark Harrison from CFA Institute and I'm joined today by Carl Bacon, Chairman of StatPro Group and a performance measurement specialist. So welcome, Carl. Thank you. Can you um, just begin by introducing the evolution of the performance attribution? Yes, I guess uh, we can start way back in uh, 1972 with uh, pharma decomposition. We wouldn't recognize it as attribution today, but really it's the first attempt to break down the sources of return of a portfolio uh, into uh, the return of the risk-free rate, return from systematic risk, uh, net selectivity, and a, a reward for uh, the specific risk taken in form of diversification. We then move to the Brinson model, uh, a series of papers written in the 1980s, 1985, 1986, 1989, Brinson Fackler, Brinson Hood Bebauer. That's really the foundation of attribution analysis. And uh, from there we can see sort of several different strands of attribution. First of all, you've got a split between arithmetic and geometric type attribution methodologies. And the motivation for that split isn't the methodology itself, but it's more to do whether you prefer arithmetic excess return or geometric excess return. Uh, I won't go into that discussion now, but uh, I prefer geometric because the returns are compoundable through time, they're convertible across currencies, and they're, they're proportionate. problem with arithmetic methodologies is that over multiple periods, the arithmetic, don't, arithmetic numbers don't add up. Um, so you have a demand for clients to see attribution that adds up, and so um, you see a whole series of smoothing algorithms being developed to uh, make sure the attribution adds up, which literally takes the residual created by those attributions, not adding up, and spreads it across all the other factors. So you've got uh, the Carino methodology, Manchero, Frongello, and Grab. Um, I prefer geometric excess return, so that leads us to uh, a geometric methodology. And you can see sort of three developments in the 90s, but they're all essentially the same model. There's the uh, Bernie, Teeter and Knowles model developed in Canada. There's the model used by WM, published in a book by Bain in the late 1990s. And there's my own model. And essentially they give the same answer, so it's the same model. On top of that, you have an evolution in terms of multi-currency attribution. And uh, the most uh, uh, influential paper there would be Konoski and Singer. 1994, important for two reasons. Uh, one is it sort of makes the case that if you have uh, currency exposures in your portfolio, it's suboptimal not to uh, manage those currencies independently. And then two, it goes on to show you how to measure those currency effects uh, correctly by using interest rate differentials. You could argue that fixed income attribution developed in a completely separate way. Uh, that's because port uh, bond managers are managing portfolios in a different way. 
Um, Van Brukelen uh, attribution is really uh, uh, an extension of Brinson, but it uses a combination of weight and duration, sort of weighted duration attribution, to reflect the uh, actual risk factor there, which is the, both the combination of weight and duration, and that ultimately leads to proper yield curve decomposition, looking at the change in shape of the yield curve. And the Brinson model, which you, uh, you mentioned, is traditionally associated with top-down investment strategies, usually equity strategies. Does it apply um, to bottom-up stock-picking strategies or bottom-up security-picking strategies? Yes, you can use the same uh, methodology at, uh, at different levels of uh, analysis. You can use the traditional asset allocation stock selection formally at a stock level uh, to measure the allocation effect of holding individual securities and the timing effect of individual securities. You can also use it at a higher level. You can actually use the Brinson methodology at sort of a sponsor type level where the individual stock decisions, if you like, are the choice of individual managers. So you can use the Brinson model at very different levels of analysis. Stock level at the bottom and the sort of the manager level at the top. And are there any uh, real flaws in that Brinson model? I would say in the original published model, yes, there were two, two essential flaws. One, one obvious and that's been largely corrected and one less obvious. The obvious one is the use of interaction. The original model, you have this definition of a new term called interaction. Combination of asset allocation and stock selection effects. Now, I would argue that no asset manager seeks to add value from interaction. It drops out of the mathematics, but it's not part of the investment process. So I don't think it should be in the original model and what you've seen over the years is that people have traditionally included interaction in the stock selection effect which is the correct place for it because that's the way people manage money. The less obvious flaw is the one of including of transaction costs. If you look at the way asset allocation is calculated it just uses the bet size and compares the index of a particular sector against the overall benchmark index there's no accounting for the transaction costs. And of course, if you uh, want to go overweight one sector and underweight another, there are transaction costs involved in that decision process. Traditionally, all the transaction costs gets loaded into stock selection. That's probably a little unfair on the manager in that particular category. And that largely hasn't been corrected, I have to say. So turning to um, ex-post risk, um, what are the key um, elements of measures in this uh, that are used in use today? Well, there's a couple of recent uh, surveys I've seen published, actually. One, the risk survey by the Spalding Group, and another, an article in the uh, uh, Financial Analyst Journal, which really suggests people are still just using the Sharpe ratio and the information ratio, largely. Sharpe ratio originally developed in 1966. It's really the grandfather of all these ratios. It's a, a measure of return in the, uh, in, in the numerator, that is the return above the risk-free rate, and a measure of variability or risk in the denominator. So you can look at it as a two-dimensional graph and you're measuring the gradient of the line. You want to be in the top left-hand quadrant of that graph, so you want to be as far over, so you want a higher gradient, so the higher the sharp ratio, the better. And um, uh, uh, there are about 20 or 30 ratios of a similar design. Um, uh, Sortino ratio is similar. Uh, um, it's a measure of return in the numerator, return above a minimum acceptable return, but downside risk in the denominator. Uh, Kalmar ratio. 
uh, similar numerator as sharp, but maximum drawdown in the denominator. Um, uh, information ratio uh, for benchmark-driven strategies is very popular, and that has a measure of excess return uh, in the numerator of the vertical axis and tracking error, or the variability of that excess return in the denominator, and very, very, very common. Uh, less common, but uh, if you're concerned about um, uh, extreme risk, would be uh, the conditional sharp ratio, uh, which has the same numerator as sharp, but in the denominator you've got uh, conditional VAR. So not just VAR, but uh, sort of a measure of the, uh, uh, what's in the tail of VAR as well. Well, there is no uncertainty uh, about historical risk um, and what has passed. It is something that's actually worth measuring? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think for three reasons. Uh, one is you simply can't uh, analyse return by looking analyse performance by just looking at return. Uh, performance is two-dimensional. You've got a combination of return and a combination of risk in the past. So um, ex post risk is valuable for just that. I think as an investor, uh, you need to understand uh, which of these risk measures you want to maximise. So you need to understand the past. You need to give a clear, articulate direction to the portfolio manager, so you need to have a good understanding of which particular measure uh, you, you want to maximise. And of course, one should always be comparing ex-post with ex-ante risk. You should be looking at risk efficiency, you should be asking the question, well, how good was our uh, 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 risk models in, in predicting what actually happened? I know there's a big difference between the two. In ex-ante, you're looking at a snapshot of the portfolio, the relations, the forecast relationships, in the instruments and securities. With ex-post risk, you've got transactional history over a period of time, but there's still value in comparing the two, and people should always compare the two. They should bring themselves back down to earth. And specifically on value at risk, is there any, um, any use really in measuring that ex-post? Yes, I think so. I mean, obviously value at risk is more commonly used as a uh, risk control or forecasting risk tool. But I think uh, the same argument holds for uh, value at risk. I think it's important to look back in the past and looking at the ex-post value at risk as well as forecasting value at risk uh, uh, in the future. Are residuals and error terms uh, still challenging issues for performance measurers? Well, I'm an old-fashioned type of performance measurer, and um, uh, my first objective uh, would be to make sure the returns are correct. And um, so um, uh, if I see a residual in any analysis, I'm naturally concerned. And um, uh, there's all sorts of reasons why residuals might exist. Uh, it could be because you're using an arithmetic model and uh, the numbers don't add up. It could be a fault in your methodology. Uh, it could be a genuine error in the calculation of the benchmark or the, uh, or the portfolio. So I think it's important to understand um, uh, 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 why that uh, residual exists. Another reason why the residual might be exists might be using a holding type, holdings type based attribution methodology. So um, uh, uh, I'm anal, I like to see the numbers add up, make sense. If there's a residual, I need to understand it and why that residual exists. And could you briefly introduce a few of the complexities of incorporating risk as well as returns in performance measurements? Well, I think this is a structural issue, and it's the way that performance measurement teams, risk control, risk management teams work in an asset management company. That's why I like risk efficiency so much, why I like the comparison between ex-post and ex-ante risk. I think traditionally performance measurers are, are measuring risk ex-post, whereas in the risk control, risk management side, you're more, more concerned with the forecasted risk. 
and I think uh, you need to bring those two together. So I would have both those functions working in the middle office uh, of an asset manager, perhaps reporting to the head of the middle office. And, uh, uh, and I would have a movement between the two. Uh, uh, I think the same sort of skill set is needed in both the performance measurement function and the risk control function. And sort of dialogue between the two is very healthy. And how is the discipline dealing with uh, increased sophistication of client portfolios and with more demanding customers? Well, uh, I think the credit crisis of a few years ago sort of re revealed a few home truths. Um, uh, investors uh, or asset managers uh, had actually bought instruments for which they didn't fully understand and um, uh, couldn't measure properly, didn't fully understand the risk. And um, uh, um, that's a difficult situation to be in. I think uh, performance measurers, risk controllers have a responsibility to ensure that uh, the instruments that uh, 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 portfolio managers want to use that they can actually measure them properly, attribute them properly, and measure the risk. Um, so uh, I'm a particular fan of instituting a sort of an approval process. Any new investment strategy, any new instrument you want to invest in, I think you need to get uh, the head of operation to say is com comfortable processing the instrument. You need the uh, performance measurer to say they're comfortable measuring the performance of that instrument and attributing it. And you need the risk controller to be very comfortable that um, uh, they can measure the risk of that instrument and measure and take account of counterparty risk as well. So um, all of those people need to be involved in the process of approving a new instrument um, so that uh, we can genuinely understand what's happening inside the portfolios. Well, thank you, Carl Bacon, for taking the time to come and talk to us about the evolution of performance measurement. And thank you, our viewers, for watching this episode of our Take 15 series. Copyright 2011, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.